Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 515, The Hollingsworth Clan, Part 1. Now, right up front, I want to apologize for the ear-piercingly difficult-to-listen-to audio from episode 515. Uh, I hope that, and it seems like from social media, that a lot of you did catch the reason why I wanted you to hear the audio. And to begin with, honestly, I thought that we would be able to clean that audio up better than we were able to, to make it a little more listenable. Uh, But there was a couple of things at play there. Number one was the fact that Narlene talks really fast. She kind of talks in circles. She has a thick accent. Uh, And then you have the fact that people were talking over each other. And then you just have some background noise. There was a lot to it. We did our best to clean it up. But I wanted you to hear it because there's some things happening in the background that aren't in the transcript. Uh, And we'll get into that all in a little bit uh, as we move through all Mike's questions. Uh, But the other thing is the transcript is actually not entirely accurate. And along those lines, before we get started today, Mike, I want to do a couple of thank yous. First of all, I want to thank Amy Burns, listener Amy Burns. Because Amy took the time to not only listen several times through that awful interview, uh, but she she used the transcript that's available on Callahan and that's up on our website and that we posted on social media to follow along. And she caught the discrepancies in the transcript and she actually corrected them. And furthermore, she went on to the parts where you hear the officers speaking in the background and she transcribed those conversations which those conversations were a big part of the reason why I wanted you to actually hear the interview to know that that is what was happening. And we'll get into why here in a little bit, like I said. But thank you, Amy Burns. Uh, I also want to thank listener Abby Scott. We've mentioned her before. She has been working on a visual timeline, a YouTube video tracking the boys' movements on the afternoon they went missing. She got that done with her own voiceover. And for those of you that haven't done so yet, Go to any of our social media and you'll find a link to the YouTube video where Abby has tracked their movements. It's really good, especially if you're a visual type learner, uh, to see on a map where the boys were moving. So thank you, Abby, for getting that done. And and we're actually working on a few more videos like that for upcoming episodes. I've just got to get some more information to Abby and she's going to create more visual timelines. And I'm going to get with uh, Katie Ross, our, our website manager, and see if we can actually get a link to those up on our website so you can find them a little easier. And lastly, I want to thank listener Allie Warren, along with uh, listener Wendell, who started having people on social media on the Facebook page, who started to compile a list and categories of things that we definitely do know to be true, of things that we definitely know are not true, things that we can speculate about, and just in different categories like that, so we can start to kind of narrow things down. Um, so th- that was Wendell's idea, and a lot of listeners contributed. Thank you so much for all of you. And then Allie took that and created a document and put it up on our fan page so that people can reference to it and add to it as we move along. So we can try to, you know, as you know, when we started this very complicated case with a lot of history to it, to start sorting through what is fact, what is fiction, what is speculation, what is misconception, and what is truth. And that's what they're working towards. So thank you to Abby, Wendell, Allie, and Amy for all of your hard work. And uh, without any further ado, Mike, we're ready to get started? Let's do it, man. All right, Bob, before we get to the questions today, I know that you've been working on finding some more information on Steve Jones. So what do you got? Yeah, it's not a whole lot, but we do have a a few updates. Um, You know, the big question is, 
Why was Steve Jones on the crime scene the day the boys were found? Was he called to the scene? And, and what happened? So we see Steve Jones being interviewed in the, in the documentary West of Memphis. In that interview, he mentions that he spoke with a dispatcher named Lucy. He talks about when he was called to the scene. Uh, I believe it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but uh, I, I believe the situation was that you know people were kind of taking a lunch break, and he decided to go back and check out uh, the woods where he discovered the shoe and then notified officers to come and search. And so the question was, why was he there to begin with? Well, do we have an all-hands rescue situation where just anybody available is going? That's definitely uh, seems to be a possibility, but there's a side note there. Regina Meek, Officer Meek, who was the first one to be alerted to this the night before, was asked if she was participating in the search the next day. And she said, no, her shift had ended. And so the question was asked, well, wouldn't you get called back in for the search? And she said, no. And I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head, but I, I think that um, she actually said that she asked if they wanted her to stay over to keep searching. And she was told no. Um, that may be inaccurate. She may have just not been called in. But in, in any case, she made it clear that everyone didn't have to come in and do the search. They weren't asking for people to come in off of their shifts. Uh, and therefore, since it was a West Memphis Police Department operation, and they're they're not having West Memphis police officers come in for the search, it definitely was not uh, you know everybody come in and help thing. Uh, now, when we go through the police dispatch logs from May 6th, uh, and we look at the morning section of those logs, we do see Steve Jones' name. But what's interesting about it, and there's, and there's several ways to interpret this, but at 9.35 a.m., uh, we have a dispatch that says 1208 South Macaulay, west on South Macaulay. And that goes 9.35 to, it looks like, 2.15. Now, that address is down in the south end of the neighborhood. Now, under that... And there's a little line drawn under it, uh, underneath the time. So I think those two are connected. But there it says, Steve Jones, and then in parentheses, disregard. So there's a lot of speculation. Uh, people have different ideas about what that could possibly mean. Uh, in my experience with dispatch, uh, to write disregard means, you know, you first, before being disregarded, you have to be sent somewhere. Uh, and then when you're disregarded, you're told to obviously disregard and don't go there. So that reads to me as though Steve Jones was asked to go to 1208 South Macaulay, uh, and this is west on South Macaulay, for some reason. Either, you know, there's a probationee that he needs to go check up on or, you know, to make another arrest for um, one of his juvenile um, people that were on probation, and he was told to disregard. Some people have said that he was probably told to disregard and instead go help with the search. Um, so I don't know. So I, I and I don't want to make any assumptions there, but I want to make clear that that is out there. That the only time we have Steve Jones' name appearing here uh, in any of these police records for that day was on the dispatch logs. He was told to disregard something at nine thirty-five. As we go through the rest of the police logs, you see where different officers are told to go to different places, or they're checking in from different places that are involved in the search. We don't see that with Jones. And then, so then, once we get to the crime scene. You know, as we've a few weeks back kind of cleared up that, you know, Steve Jones was indeed the one to find the shoe. Uh, he notified uh, Officer Allen or Detective Allen, who then got in the water and discovered Michael Moore's body. And then we have the strangeness where in the first trial, Allen uh, doesn't identify Steve Jones as being the one to find the shoes. But we have that kind of stutter step when he's testifying where he says, I observed kind of stutters and says it was pointed out to me. 
a shoe in the creek, and he went and got it. And then later down the testimony, when they asked who else was there, he mentioned Steve Jones' name. And then the second trial, when Mike Allen testifies, he says that Steve Jones found the shoe and contacted him. Uh, but then when we have other retellings of the story by Gitchell and Ridge, it's always Mike Allen who found the shoe. Steve, or Steve Jones is never mentioned by any of them. Uh, and then lastly, one thing that we do know about, and it may have something to do with why he wasn't called to testify, uh, is the fact that Jones seems as though it's at that time was actually involved with a relative of John Fogelman, the lead prosecutor on the case. Uh, he, I think he ended up marrying a relative of maybe a niece of John Fogelman, so maybe there was a conflict of interest there. Uh, I, I don't really know, but I just know those two things kind of occurred at the same time. So that may have something to do with it, the reason why he was never called in to testify. But there's no way that I can know for sure if that's why, because again, he just seems to be very, uh, he was there and involved, but also kind of invisible in this case. Uh, so I don't really know, but that's what I've got as far as updating on Steve Jones. And in the coming weeks, as we continue on with the Hollingsworth clan episodes, there's going to be a couple of them. Uh, we're not done hearing from Steve Jones. All right, let's move into our questions. First, we have one from Robin. She says, if Narlene was picking up her friend from work with her husband and children, which implies more than one person, in the car, what type of vehicle was she driving? There are already two adults and two kids in the car, so where is the friend going to sit? Okay, it's actually worse than that. If you, if you read her statement, there was her, her husband, and three children in the car. There was five of them, according to her uh, account of the day. Um, there was their daughter, Mary, Tabitha, little Ricky, and then her husband, Ricky, and herself. They were driving a 1982 Ford Escort. I believe it was a station wagon, or yeah, for the 1982 Ford Escort station wagon, uh, which is a smaller type station wagon. Uh, so yeah, th there was a five-seater car with five people in it, but there was also, of course, the, the back, I guess, available for kids to get back into. Okay, and this next one's from Kathy. She says, I wonder if the three boys Narlene saw were Christopher, Michael, and Stevie. I mean, there is an elementary school right there and an apartment building there. So I imagine these three were not the only boys in the neighborhood around that age. I honestly doubt they were the ones she saw. Any thoughts? There's just no way to know. And to be fair to Narlene Hollingsworth, she never said that it was the boys. She said that she saw three boys there. Uh, she identifies one very specifically as wearing green shorts. Um, she does describe a bicycle with black on it, and I think even a light green bicycle. Uh, says one boy was heavier than the others, so it's there's there's a lot of her statement that seems to fit, and then there's some of it that doesn't, you know. And that's part of the reason why, you know, I still think that there was there was another boy traveling with the three on that day, because you know if there were three, all three were on bikes. We know Chris wasn't on a bike. Um, and then you've got the one in the green shorts, neither of them or none of the three were wearing green shorts. So, uh, it's, th there's no way really to know for certain, but yeah, it's a, it's a complete absolute possibility that those were just three different boys, but it, it is also odd that she notes that she says they were going away from their homes because she knows where they live. That kind of caught my attention. Okay. Next Adam says, was there any reward money ever handed out? If so, is there a record of who received it? And along with this, listener Cynthia wants to know when the reward was offered. Okay, I, I don't think to this day we know if anyone got the reward money or, and if so, who got it, which is a little frustrating. Maybe somebody's got some insight into that, but I haven't been able to find it. 
Uh, I also don't know exactly when the reward money was offered. Uh, I do know there's, there's a newspaper article from May 18th, so that's 12 days after the bodies were found, that said the reward fund had grown to over $30,000, uh, and Gitchell is stating that he's expecting more large donations. So, I mean, I mean, typically something like this, you'll have, if I had to make it, and understand, complete guess, but if I had to make an estimation, I would assume that probably by the time the weekend was over, police were already offering a reward. You know, you have Crime Stoppers has money set aside for this already, which will usually start with like $1,000 with anybody for information. And then as donations come in, that amount grows and grows and grows. I know that people were coming to the aid of the families and making donations right away, right from the get. Um, but there, I, I haven't been able to personally, and, and if any of you listeners out there know this information, please share it with us because I've been wondering the same thing because it, it makes a difference when we look at all of the different tips that come in. And as we start to break them down uh, to see which ones are legit and which ones don't seem to be, uh, is there a motivation there as far as money goes? Uh, but you know, all I know is that by May 18th, the reward was over $30,000. Um, you know, indicating that obviously the reward was out there before that because it said it, by that point it had grown to that amount. And it, like even because we're talking days here. So we look at that's that was in the the morning paper on the 18th, which means that, you know, in order for that to go to press, that was the case on the 17th. You know, so we're starting to move back as far as when it started. But no, I don't know when it started. And I do know it grew to over $30,000 within less than less than two weeks. And I don't, as far as I know, there's no record of who ever actually received the reward. All right, this next one's from Angela. She asks, is Narlene Hollingsworth related to Domini? If so, why didn't she stop and talk to her when she saw her somewhere where she shouldn't have been instead of calling someone else in the family and asking them about what she saw? I don't think she called anyone else asking about what she saw. She was, so, so yes, she, the, the answer to the first question, Narlene is Domini's aunt, I believe. I think that Domini's mother is Narlene's sister, I believe is how that connection goes. Um, so yeah, they're, they're related as far as why she didn't stop. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, from late, some of the stuff we're going to get into this weekend on this week's episode, uh, we hear a little bit more from other people and other family members that Narlene suggested maybe that they should stop, um, but they didn't. But yeah, as far as I, I don't think she told any other family or you know called other family members. I think that she just picked up Dixie, who is I think her cousin. They're they're all intertwined, related, and some people call her an aunt. Some people call her a grandmother. So she supposedly talked about it with Dixie, uh, and then from there, you know, there she obviously had conversations. But I don't know that she specifically called anybody else. Uh, real quick, Bob, can we go back to the car thing? Several listeners are wondering your thoughts about Narlene going to pick somebody up from work with five people in the car. Yeah, I think that certainly starts to question the credibility of the tip. You know, it's it's possible. But what we know from the fact that we are looking at a five-seat car, we have bucket seats in the front and a bench across the back. Escort is not a big car, uh, but it is a station wagon, a small station wagon. You know, at that time, you had like the um, like the Chevy Celebrities, that were, which were a long station wagon. Uh, that actually had a third row of seats in the back. I don't believe from what I've been looking into that the Ford Escort did, but you have five people in a five-seater car going to pick one person up from work at 10 o'clock at night. And so in order for that to be possible, at least one of the kids would have had to have ridden in the back to get into the very back of the station wagon. 
which is possible. That happens, especially back then. That used to happen more. In the early 90s, people were less concerned about seatbelts, I think. At least in my family, they were. Uh, so th- that's possible. But but then you wonder, why go through that trouble to have that many people in the car? So it's 10 o'clock at night. It's a school night. There was normal school the next day. And Narlene just has to go pick up Dixie from work. And clearly, Narlene can drive. If you look at the rest of her statement, when she's driving LG around, she drives people around all the time. So she's capable of doing that by herself. But instead, on a school night at 10 o'clock at night, decides to load up the entire family into the car to go pick her up. It seems strange. And it's not like she needed her husband to drive because her husband had a DUI, according to her, that she was at the courthouse paying for. And I don't know if he still had a driver's license. Uh, Typically, if you get a DUI, you get your license suspended. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it other than. If that's accurate, and it's possible it's accurate, it's it's certainly possible, it just seems really strange that, yeah, she loaded up the entire family, occupied every seat in the car in order to go pick one person up from work, requiring one of the kids to ride in the back when she could have just left the husband home with the kids and went and ran the errand on her own. So, yeah, I, I don't know, but that's a good point. Okay, next, Cynthia writes, Is it fair to assume they didn't record Damien's interview because they were trying to hide something? Or is it the practice of recording interviews inconsistent throughout the investigation? It is inconsistent throughout the investigation. There's a lot of interviews that are recorded and a lot that aren't. I don't think we can make a leap to say they were trying to hide something, but we have to leave it out there. I mean, we, we just don't know, and that's the disadvantage of not having an interview recorded. And, and then with this interview with Narlene, we, we find for sure, that they obviously did have the ability to record, even on the go. Uh, you know, th- this this interview, it says, took place at Narlene's trailer, but then it almost sounds like they're driving or that they had driven, but then it's that it also sounds like there's maybe a, a window open or something causing background noise, and then again, at the same time, we hear uh, some background conversations. It sounds like the officers are on the telephone, some people suggested that maybe it was a police radio, but you don't hear the other side coming back. Uh, and this is before the time of cell phones, so I, I don't know. But it, but getting back to Damien's, I don't know. I, you know, and you also have to ask yourself the question: Is it possible that it was recorded and the recording was tossed out? You know, we we just don't know. There's no way of knowing if it indeed was recorded. We know that we don't have a recording for it. Um, and as we've seen, there seems to be some inconsistencies between the written notes in the final report. That's always troubling. Um, but, the, but you, you know, sometimes you see things that were done in hindsight, and that's one of the troubles with waiting a long time to file a report, uh, which happens a lot in a lot of cases where, you know, weeks or even I've seen months, I've even seen up to a year after an interview occurs that somebody writes a report up on the interview. But when they do that, they refer back to their notes. Uh, and then the notes don't seem to line up with the report in all instances. So I don't know. There's a lot of question there. Um, it's just, you know, as I said during that episode, it's kind of up to you whether you believe, you know, again, there are people that say, well, it's an, a law enforcement officer, so it must be true. Uh, there's people that just inherently don't believe law enforcement. And then there's, you know, myself included, people that realize that cops are just people and there are good cops and bad cops. And there is definitely. In a lot of places, uh, the feeling of the end justifies the means, meaning you know the, that a cop might cut corners, not because they're trying to frame someone, 
but because they believe someone to be guilty and they believe that, well, even though this isn't exactly accurate, it's all for a good cause because we're, uh, we're helping to convict a guilty person. So that justifies bending some rules. So I don't know. I don't know if that happened or not, but it's, it's a good question. Okay, let's take a quick break here to hear about our sponsor, and then we'll get back to the questions. Today's episode is sponsored by Hims. Okay, guys, it's time to get real again. I want to talk to you. Okay, now let's hear from Anna. She says, why was Jason Baldwin's name mentioned in the background of the audio? It's around the 2750 mark on the audio after you hear, quote, what's his name around the 2745 mark. It almost sounds like the audio was dubbed over an existing conversation. And no, I'm not saying there was a conspiracy, just looking for clarification. Yeah, so I don't think at all that the audio was dubbed over an existing conversation, but that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to hear the audio of that interview, is because while Lieutenant Hester is talking to Narlene, Detective Dabbs is on, I think, the phone to someone else. And you're exactly right. You hear him say, Jason Baldwin. Except for Narlene doesn't say anything about Jason Baldwin. Now, keep in mind, this interview is happening at just about the same time that Damien Eccles' interview is happening. So, if I have to speculate, I'm guessing that Dabbs was talking to someone at the precinct, relaying information either from Damien Eccles or to the interviewer about what Narlene was saying. But again, as I mentioned in the episode, what's interesting is, if that's what's happening... It seems very strange that Damien wasn't asked about this event. You know, if, if he's hearing from Dabs on the scene that, hey, I'm talking to Narlene, and she says that she saw Damien that night walking on the service road, he was all muddy, which don't let me forget to come back to the muddy part also, but says that he was on the scene, he was right there near the crime scene, he was muddy. Why wouldn't they then ask Damien or confront him with that? Like, hey, you're saying you were at home that night, but we have a witness that puts you at the crime scene. So I find that strange, but it's also another instance, and you're going to see this as we move forward. As I mentioned, the two Jason Baldwins gets very confusing, because if the Jason Baldwin mention was from the Damien Eccles interview, so you have, I don't know if it was Ridge or whoever was on the other end of that phone says, well, you know, Damien said that he thinks Jason Baldwin did it. Remember, Damien wasn't talking about his friend Jason Baldwin. He was talking about the other, as we've been calling the big mean Jason Baldwin. Uh, but then you have it, it, Jason Baldwin lives in that trailer park. And it was kind of my assumption that on the day before, on the 9th, that Narlene likely saw uh, the police at Jason Baldwin's trailer where they were talking to Domini, Jason, and Damien. So it makes me wonder what was said when the tape was turned off. But it's it's definitely interesting. And as we build onto the case where we're investigating the investigation uh, to remember the fact that during this interview, there's a sidebar conversation happening where Jason Baldwin's name is mentioned when it shouldn't have been mentioned because he had nothing to do with Narlene's statement. And then also on that topic, to go back, like I said, to the to the muddy part, you have a little bit of, seems like manipulation there, or maybe there's more to this than we realize, but Narlene said in her tip that Domini and Damien were dirty. In this interview, she says again, they were dirty. And Detective Dab says, so before you said they were all muddy, covered in mud. And she again doubles down and says, yeah, they were dirty. They were certainly dirty. 
But then in the side conversation that you hear in the background, you hear him relaying to whoever he's talking to that she says they were covered in mud. Uh, But from what we've heard from Narlene, she doesn't say they were muddy. She just said they were dirty. All right. And also on social media, listener Kristen made note of the, quote, stick in the ground that Narlene showed the detectives before her interview. What's that all about? That's actually pretty interesting, and it's, a, it's another good point, because as we're going to get into this week on Sunday, there are several different versions of this story. The police at one point interview uh, the husband, Ricky. They interview the kids. They interview Dixie Hufford, uh, who's also known as Dixie Hollingsworth. And the location where the sighting happened seems to shift. So it becomes that it was right there by the Blue Beacon in Love's truck stop. But here's the problem. Those locations are both east of 7th Street. As everyone knows, the Blue Beacon is right next to the crime scene. Love's truck stop was right next to the Blue Beacon. Uh, So that would put everybody east of 7th Street. But in fact, as if you listen closely, where Narlene actually says this happens is right at the off-ramp from the interstate onto the service road for 7th Street. Well, that off-ramp actually is west of 7th Street, a a little ways, but maybe a quarter mile west of 7th Street. And as they dig deeper, the stick they're talking about, now it's, at one point it kind of sounds like Narlene saying that Domini was like pointing the stick at them, this yellow stick or whatever it was, but you do hear Dab say that he confirmed that the yellow stick was right there at the off-ramp from the interstate onto 7th Street. Which again is I won't say nowhere near because that's making it sound like it's you know 100 miles away, but it's a significant difference. If it's west of Seventh Street, if it's right there at the off ramp, I would say a good quarter to a half a mile away from the crime scene is where that off ramp is. And at that point, if they're, they're if that's where they're seen, you know they could have come from anywhere. They're not walking right on the service road right next to the crime scene, which again is what the story later became. But based on that yellow stick and Dab's confirmation and what Narlene said about the off-ramp, this this sighting did not occur right next to the Blue Beacon and Loves. It actually occurred probably at least a quarter mile to the west where the interstate off-ramps onto the service road well west of 7th Street. This next one comes from Big D on Twitter. He says, I love your show. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Big D. His question is, when Damien Eccles got questioned by the police over and over, did he have any legal advice? Like you said, he was very cocky to start with, and I wonder if any lawyer would have given him decent advice. No, Damien Eccles did not have an attorney, and yes, a lawyer would have given him lots of advice. This whole case would be different. Now, and depending on what side of the fence you're on, that could be for better or for worse. But with this case, the way this ended up, if all three defendants had a lawyer right from the beginning, None of them would have been convicted, in my opinion, because there, there's no physical evidence tying them to the crime. There's no direct witnesses tying them to the crime. Everything that got them convicted was based on things they said. And if they had an attorney, the first thing an attorney would say is stop talking. And, and this is let's get aside from this case for a minute and just look at all the other wrongful conviction cases that we've looked at. Uh, and we'll, we'll even specifically narrow this down to DNA proven wrongful conviction cases, what mostly gets people in trouble is their mouth. And almost always, you find a big issue. We talked about last week about Ed Eights and his alibi. It all comes down to an alibi. 
because now the cases I'm talking about, what is a pattern typically is innocent people don't know what the hell they were doing even two, three days ago. Because if they're innocent, then it was a normal day to them. Nothing significant happened. you know. And, and so you fall into routines. You're trying to remember exactly what happens. Usually what happens is they start off with a very basic, yeah, I think I was here. And then the police start pressing. And then they get nervous. And then they, keep, and then they realize they're a suspect. And they try to elaborate. And they try to come up with more details. They're, they're, at this point, they're what we've called in the past flailing to try to you know, you know misdirect the police to somewhere else, get them off of them. And they try to add more detail to their alibi. And then when that doesn't pan out, then they're in deep shit because now they have, quote, lied about their alibi. And so, yeah, and, and that's why any attorney, and we say this all the time, hopefully none of you listening will ever be brought in for questioning for something you didn't do. If you ever are, there should only ever be one word to come out of your mouth, and that's lawyer. All right, there was also some discussion about whether or not this case specifically was a cold case. Other comments, too, over whether or not this is a closed case. So we have, is this a cold case and or is this a closed case? Can you elaborate, Bob? Yeah, I know someone specifically asked me or questioned the fact that I said this is a cold case. And first of all, let's let's look at closed case. Yes, this is a closed case. Edward Eight's case is a closed case. Jesse Eldridge's case is a closed case. Anand Syed's case was a closed case. George Powell's case is a closed case, meaning there has been a conviction. The case is closed. Now, then you have different levels of closed, I guess. You have an appeals process where uh, a defendant or a convicted person has some direct appeals that they can go through. And then after that, they have habeas uh, post-conviction relief where they can go through a Rules 37 hearing. Um, this is where you can claim, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel, you know, that you had a bad lawyer or you find Brady violations or things like that. Uh, and then some states have a limit to how far you can go with that. And so Edward Eight's case is a perfect example of this. His case is in the exact, was in the exact same position as this case. Ed exhausted his direct appeals and he exhausted his habeas. His case was closed forever. And that's important to point out for all the people that, that, that want to keep arguing that this is stupid, we're even doing this because this is a closed case. It's, you know, it's part of their agreement was that they, they, they can't appeal anymore. Well, it, it doesn't matter because in Edward Eight's case, he could not appeal anymore either. But when you find new and compelling evidence, any case can be reopened. You can always make a claim, an 1107 claim is what it's called, for actual innocence based on new and compelling evidence. In this particular case, we have an open road to do that. Now, we've had to fight in other cases. And with Jesse Eldridge's case, we were able to get the Conviction Integrity Unit on board in the prosecutor's office, so there was no fight. In Edward Eight's case, at the beginning, they were like, no, this is closed. He can't even, they don't even have to listen to anything he has to say. We were able to convince prosecutors to at least hear us out as we found new evidence. And it, his case now has been reopened. He is represented by the Innocence Project. And right now, as we speak, we're waiting for DNA results to come back, along with all of the other evidence that we've already found. So that was an, air quotes, closed case. But with new evidence, it's been reopened. In this case, Prosecutor Scott Ellington, who was the prosecutor that offered the Alford plea when the three convicted were released from prison, 
has gone on record and said that he's always willing to consider new evidence. If new evidence comes back in, he will reevaluate. So for anybody that keeps saying this is there's there's no point in this, it's a lost cause, you just I'm amazed that those are the same people that are all over social media 40 times a day arguing about a case that they considered closed that nothing can happen with. It's kind of a, a contradiction there, but uh, it can absolutely be reopened. The whole reason we're doing this is if we find new evidence, and that could go either way. I mean, we could find new evidence that indicate, say, Damien Eccles. And if that's the case, that's what we'll present. And it, that won't matter so much for them because they've already been convicted, but we'll have closure. But if we find new evidence that indicates someone else did it, the case can be reopened. Their convictions could be overturned under actual innocence, and someone else can be prosecuted for the case. So that's why we're doing this is to figure out, is there evidence? There has to be evidence out there. You know, we, you know, we're going to give it hell and hopefully we'll find it. Maybe we will, maybe we won't, but we're going to do our best. But I believe that there is certainly evidence out there. There are people who know what happened, who have not come forward yet. And I think that there's a high likelihood there is more physical evidence out there that could be tested. Uh, and so that's what we're working for. And that's so, yes, this is a closed case but it is no more a closed case than any other closed case, which we have specifically, us, the Truth and Justice Army, so to speak, has broken that barrier multiple times before with success. So yes, it's a closed case that can still be reopened. I don't know why anybody's even making that argument. Uh, and secondly, I referred to it as a cold case, and the conversation was, why are you calling it a cold case when it's in fact closed? And it's not cold because it's there's a conviction. Well, that has to do with our process. And it's in this case, because it's so well known, it's causing frustration and it's causing some animosity. Uh, and it happens every time people throw around the bias word and things like that. But in order for us to do these cases, the way I work is if I decide through a screening process that we're going to take on a new case from that point forward, we throw everything out. And we start from scratch with everyone, everyone having the presumption of innocence. And we try to figure out with a new investigation. Now, we use the old evidence. Then we go through, as we're doing right now, with the Narling Hollingsworth statement. You know That was used against Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin in trial to convict them. This statement was used to convict them. And so we go through and we analyze. We investigate the investigation. And we look through it. And we analyze it. And we check it against other sources and say, is this legit evidence or should this be thrown out? And so that's what we do. Everyone has a presumption of innocence. And we reinvestigate from scratch, from the beginning, by reevaluating old evidence, searching for new witnesses, which we've already had some new witnesses that we've spoken to at this point in this case that no one's ever heard from before. And then we move through in our own investigation. So it is a cold case to me and hopefully to all of you who are trying to legitimately go through this process and do this with me as a true crowdsource investigation with us all working together, that we are looking at this as though everyone is innocent and can we find proof that someone committed this murder? And that's why I say it's a cold case because it is a cold case to me. If it's not to you, if you're convinced it's already solved, for starters, I'm not exactly sure why you're involved here other than to, I guess, make your argument for a conclusion that you've already come to. But I haven't come to any conclusion and. The majority of our listeners haven't come to any conclusion. The reason we're doing this is because we want to come to a conclusion because 
For anybody that says that they absolutely know what happened, either that the three are guilty or that the three are innocent, in my opinion, you're kidding yourself. If it was that clear cut, if there wasn't doubt, if there wasn't reasonable doubt all over on every side for every suspect in this case, then there wouldn't be such a 25-year argument about it. The, the three wouldn't have been released on an Alford plea if it was so clear-cut that the prosecutor was certain that they did it. There's clearly doubt on every side, and we're trying to remove that doubt. And, and wherever that takes us is where it takes us. And before we wrap things up, Bob, we've got this last question here. Kimberly says, so did Damien know about what Narlene Hollingsworth was going to say about having seen them on the service road? And that's why he said, quote, maybe LG did it. Maybe the reason for Narlene getting involved is that she's covering for somebody else. And then adding to that, Azul asks, did Damien say he was walking there at that time? Okay, good question. As to Kimberly's question, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that Damien knew that Narlene was going to say that. Although, again, you have a small community. She had already made in, called in the tip on the day before about Damien and LG. Uh, so maybe he had heard something. I don't know. I mean, he didn't really say anything specific about LG when he was being questioned other than he just thought he was weird and he's somebody who maybe could have done it. And as far as Damien, uh, whether he says that he was, in fact, on the road at that time, no, he does not. According to Damien, what he said in up to this point in every interview on the 7th, 9th, and in this interview on the 10th, he was home. He had went somewhere with uh, Jason Baldwin, I think, to mow the grass at his uncle's house. He was there with Dominie. In the detailed interview with Ridge, he says that uh, his mom picked up him and Dominie and took Dominie home and took him home. I think they made a stop at some friend's house. And then I think by like 6 o'clock, he said he was home for the rest of the evening uh, and was on the phone with a couple other people later that night, is what Damien has said up to this point. So no, he hasn't said anything about being on the surface road. And like I said, based on the notes in the interview, it doesn't appear that he was asked whether or not he was on the service road. Now, getting back to our beginning of the episode when people are asking about the interview being recorded, I I will say that it, I do find it hard to believe that if during his interview, which it seems like that's what was happening with those background conversations, that Dabs and Hester were talking to someone telling them that this sighting occurred, that that question was never asked of Damien while he was sitting there interviewing. Um, but again, no recording, no transcripts, just notes. So we don't know. It's, it's possible that they did ask him if he was there and he gave an explanation or denied it or confirmed it. We don't know because there's nothing in the notes about it, much like a lot of other things that we have questions about. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music of the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Amanda Meyer created our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindor, Fritabliss, and Stephanie McConnell. You can keep in touch with us through email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com through our Facebook page, or the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And you can always follow along on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod. And we do have our 24-7 tip line at 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Busson. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.
to name brand prescriptions to give you erectile. <clears throat> f- this. <laughs> Could you say that again? I don't want to. Uh, to give you erectile without the dysfunction. Forhims.com is hard made easy. Say hello to your little friend. I can't. You've got to be kidding me. I swear to God. <laughs> I'm so upset. It's so bad. Oh, God. This is going to be so much shit for this. <laughs> oh, my God. Forhims.com is hard made easy. Say hello to your little friend. Ah! You owned it, though. That was the best course of action. Oh. You fucking owned it. Say hello to your little friend. Dude. Really, it's a great thing for guys. I'm sure there's tons of guys that deal with this, but god damn, to have to talk about it? Yeah, that's f***ing rough. So, oh, my God. Punked. Punked. <laughs> oh, God. Can you imagine how bad that's going to be for the Bob Ruff haters out oh, there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's going on. On social though. media. But you know that's that's why this is such a really it's why this is such a good product because it's so f***ing embarrassing to talk about, dude. Yeah, and they don't have to talk about it with anybody. No, but you had to talk about it. I know. Dang, dang, dude. <laughs> like, how much worse can it get? Say hello to your little friend, dude. <laughs> and the creepiest part was the. Old rich men in bathrooms. Yeah. Uh, it just makes you... It, it, it. Anyway. No. Nope. All right. <laughs> Can't even do don't, this right. Don't look at me. <laughs>